A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 6 Menea to Siut, Part 2. As for the rock cut tombs of Gebel Abu Feda, they must number many hundreds. For nearly twelve miles the range runs parallel to the river, and throughout that distance the face of the cliffs is pierced with innumerable doorways. Some are small and square, twenty or thirty together, like rows of portholes. Others are isolated. Some are cut so high up that they must have been approached from above. Others again come close upon the level of the river. Some of the doorways are faced to represent jams and architraves, some, excavated laterally, appear to consist of a series of chambers, and are lit from without by small windows cut in the rock. One is approached by a flight of rough steps leading up from the water's edge, and another, hewn high in the face of the cliff, just within the mouth of a little ravine, shows a simple but imposing façade supported by four detached pillars. No modern travellers seem to visit these tombs, while those of the old school, as Wilkinson, Champollion, etc., dismiss them with a few observations. Yet, with the single exception of the mountains behind Thebes, there is not, I believe, any one spot in Egypt which contains such a multitude of sepulchre excavations. Many look, indeed, as if they might belong to the same interesting and early epoch as those of Beni Hassan. I may here mention that about half-way, or rather less than half-way, along the whole length of the range, I observed two large hieroglyph stela incised upon the face of a projecting mass of boldly rounded cliff at a height of perhaps a hundred and fifty feet above the river. These stele, apparently royal ovals, and sculptured as unusual side by side, may have measured from twelve to fifteen feet in height but in the absence of any near object by which to scale them, I could form but a rough guess as to their actual dimensions. The boat was just then going so fast that to sketch or take notes of the hieroglyphs was impossible. Before I could adjust my glass they were already in the rear, and by the time I had called the rest of the party together they were no longer distinguishable. Coming back several months later, I looked for them again, but without success, for the intense midday sun was then pouring full upon the rocks, to the absolute obliteration of everything like shallow detail. While watching vainly, however, for the stella, I was compensated by the unexpected sight of a colossal bas-relief high up on the northward face of a cliff standing, so to say, at the corner of one of those little recesses, or cul-de-sac, which here and there break the uniformity of the range. The sculptured relief of this large subject was apparently very low, but owing to the angle at which it met the light, one figure, which could not have measured less than eighteen or twenty feet in height, was distinctly visible. I immediately drew L's attention to the spot, and she not only discerned the figure without the help of a glass, but believed, like myself, that she could see traces of a second. As neither Stella nor the bas-relief would seem to have been observed by previous travellers, I may add for the guidance of others that the round and tower-like rock upon which the former are sculptured lies about a mile to the southward of the sheikh's tomb and palm-tree, a strikingly picturesque bit which no one can fail to notice, 
and a little beyond some very large excavations near the water's edge, while the bas-relief is to be found at a short distance below the Coptic convent and cemetery. Having for nearly twelve miles skirted the base of Gebel Abu Feda, by far the finest panoramic stretch of rock scenery on this side of the second cataract, the Nile takes an abrupt bend to the eastward, and thence flows through many miles of cultivated flat. On coming to this sudden elbow, the wind, which had hitherto been carrying us along at a pace but little inferior to that of a steamer, now struck us full on the beam, and drove the boat to shore with such violence that all the steersman could do was just to run the filet's nose into the bank and steer clear of some ten or twelve native kangyas that had been driven in before us. The bagstones rushed in next, and presently a large, iron-built dahabiyah, having come gallantly along under the cliffs with all sail set, was seen to make a vain struggle at the fatal corner, and then plunge headlong at the bank, like King Agib's ship upon the Lodestone Mountain. Imprisoned here all the afternoon, we exchanged visits of condolence with our neighbors in misfortune, had our ears nearly cut to pieces by the driving sand, and failed signally in the endeavor to take a walk on the shore. Still the fury of the storm went on increasing. The wind howled, the river raced in turbid waves, the sand drove in clouds, and the face of the sky was darkened as if by a London fog. Meanwhile one boat after another was hurried to shore, and before nightfall we numbered a fleet of some twenty-odd craft, native and foreign. It took the united strength of both crews all next day to warp the filet and bagstones across the river by means of a rope and an anchor, an expedient that deserves special mention, not for its amazing novelty or ingenuity, but because our men declared it to be impracticable. Their fathers, they said, had never done it. Their fathers' fathers had never done it. Therefore it was impossible. Being impossible, why should they attempt it? They did attempt it, however, and much to their astonishment they succeeded. It was, I think, towards the afternoon of this second day, when strolling by the margin of the river, that we first made the acquaintance of that renowned insect, the Egyptian beetle. He was a very fine specimen of his race, nearly half an inch long in the back, as black and shiny as a scarab cut in jet, and busily engaged in the preparation of a large rissole of mud which he presently began laboriously propelling up the bank. We stood and watched him for some time, half in aberration, half in pity. His rissole was at least four times bigger than himself, and to roll it up that steep incline to a point beyond the level of next summer's inundation was a labor of Hercules for so small a creature. One longed to play the part of the Dussex machina, and carry it up the bank for him but that would have been a denouement beyond his power of appreciation. We all know the old story of how this beetle lays its eggs by the river's brink, encloses them in a ball of moist clay, rolls the beetle to a safe place on the edge of the desert, buries it in the sand, and when his time comes, dies content, having provided for the safety of his successors. Hence his mythic fame, hence all the quaint symbolism that by degrees attached itself to his little person, and ended by investing him with a special sacredness which has often been mistaken for actual worship. Standing by thus, watching the movements of the creature, its untiring energy, its extraordinary muscular strength, its business-like devotion to the matter in hand, one sees how subtle a lesson the old Egyptian moralists had presented to them for contemplation, 
and with how fine a combination of wisdom and poetry they regarded this little black scarab, not only as an emblem of the creative and preserving power, but perhaps also of the immortality of the soul. As a type, no insect has ever had so much greatness thrust upon him. He became a hieroglyph, and stood for a word signifying both to be and to transform. His portrait was multiplied a million-fold, sculptured over the portals of temples, fitted to the shoulders of a god, engraved on gems, molded in pottery, painted on sarcophagi and the walls of tombs, worn by the living, and buried with the dead. Every traveller on the Nile brings away a handful of the smaller scarabs, genuine or otherwise. Some may not particularly care to possess them, yet none can help buying them, if only because other people do so, or to get rid of a troublesome dealer, or to give to friends at home. I doubt, however, if even the most enthusiastic scarab fanciers really feel, in all its force, the symbolism attaching to these little gems, or appreciate the exquisite naturalness of their execution, till they have seen the living beetle at its work. In Nubia, where the strip of cultivable land is generally but a few feet in breadth, the scarab's task is comparatively light, and the breed multiplies freely. But in Egypt he often has a wide plain to traverse with his burden, and is therefore scarce in proportion to the difficulty with which he maintains the struggle for existence. The scarab race in Egypt would seem to have diminished very considerably since the days of the pharaohs, and the time is not perhaps far distant, when the naturalist will look in vain for specimens on this side of the first cataract. As far as my own experience goes, I can only say that I saw scores of these beetles during the Nubian part of the journey, but that to the best of my recollection this was the only occasion upon which I observed one in Egypt. The Nile makes four or five more great bends between Gebel Abu Feda and Siut, passing Manfalut by the way, which town lies some distance back from the shore. All things taken into consideration, the fitful wind that came and went continually, the tremendous zigzags of the river, the dead calm which befell us when only eight miles from Siut, and the long day of tracking that followed, with the town in sight the whole way, we thought ourselves fortunate to get in by the evening of the third day after the storm. Those last eight miles are, however, for open, placid beauty, as lovely in their way as anything north of Thebes. The valley is here very wide and fertile. The town, with its multitudinous minarets, appears first on one side and then on the other, according to the windings of the river. The distant, pinky mountains look almost as transparent as the air or the sunshine, while the banks unfold an endless succession of charming little subjects, every one of which looks as if it asked to be sketched as we pass. A shadoof and a clump of palms, a triad of shaggy black buffaloes up to their shoulders in the river, and dozing as they stand, a wide-spreading sycamore fig in the shadow of which lie a man and a camel asleep, a fallen palm uprooted by the last inundation, with its fibrous roots yet clinging to the bank and its crest in the water, a group of sheikhs' tombs with glistening white cupolas relieved against a background of dark foliage an old, disused water-wheel lying up sideways against the bank like a huge teetotum, and garlanded with wild tendrils of a gourd. Such are a few out of many bits by the way, which, if they offer nothing very new, at least at all events present the old material under fresh aspects, 
and in combination with a distance of such ethereal light and shade, and such opalescent tenderness of tone, that it looks more like an air-drawn mirage than a piece of the world we live in. Like a mirage, too, that fairy town of Siut seemed always to hover at the same unattainable distance, and after hours of tracking to be no nearer than at first. Sometimes, indeed, following the long reaches of the river, we appear to be leaving it behind, and although, as I have said, we had eight miles of hard work to get to it, I doubt whether it was ever more than three miles distant as the bird flies. It was late in the afternoon, however, when we turned the last corner, and the sun was already setting when the boat reached the village of Hamra, which is the mooring place for Siut. Siut itself, with clustered cupolas and airy minarets, lying back in the plain at the foot of a great mountain pierced with tombs. Now it was in the bond that our crew were to be allowed twenty-four hours for making and baking bread at Siut, Esna, and Aswan. No sooner, therefore, was the Dahabiyah moored than Rais Hassan and the steersmen started away at full speed on two little donkeys to buy flour, while Mehemet Ali, one of our most active and intelligent sailors, rushed off to hire the oven. For here, at Esna and Aswan, there are large flour stores and public bakehouses for the use of sailors on the river, who make and bake their bread in large lots, cut it into slices, dry it in the sun, and preserve it in the form of rusks for months together. Thus prepared, it takes the place of ship-biscuit, and it is so far superior to ship-biscuit that it neither moulds nor breeds the maggot, but remains good and wholesome to the last crumb. End of section 17